everyone has eight great-grandparents. Did you know that? Uh, that's how the math works. Two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. But it's not often that we think about our great-grandparents. Modern people, in fact, most modern people don't even know the names of all eight of our great-grandparents. And yet it's so fascinating to think about this. If you were to take one of them, just one, out of the picture, remove one of those eight people, you would have never been born. I would have never been born. That's how essential they are to our very existence. And think about the details, how those four couples ever met. I mean, just imagine if one of them had turned right instead of turning left one day, or if he had taken this job instead of that job, or if she had stayed home instead of going to the school dance, that perhaps they would have never met and I would have never been born. Very back-to-the-future way of, of thinking of things. But it's, it's humbling, at least for me, it's humbling to consider all of the, the just millions of details that God has orchestrated throughout history that have led to me being here, that have led to me being born, that God has orchestrated it just so, not just my great-grandparents, but on down through the generations. And so I don't know if you've ever done this. If you've ever done a little genealogy research, uh, Ancestry.com or 23andMe, things like that, then you've discovered all sorts of things that, that you otherwise would have never known about people and places and, and behaviors, uh, activities. Um, some of the things that we find when we look back in our family tree we're proud of. But the truth is, the more we learn about our family's history, the more we find things we wish we didn't know. Uh, every family tree is just this way, including mine. In, in our family tree, we've got war heroes, and we've also got scoundrels. Uh, there are, if we're honest, there are things in our past that we cannot change. We can't have anything uh, we, we didn't have anything to do with, and yet, if we could somehow edit those things out, perhaps we would. Uh, well, y'all, today I, I want us to look, in the celebration of Advent, as we look to the coming of Jesus Christ, I want us to look at something that uh, is often overlooked. It is the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. And I'll just acknowledge this, I'm sure you can relate. Whenever I open the Bible to a genealogy, to a family tree, there's, there is this temptation to skip over it, or at the very least to skim through it, because the, the names are hard to pronounce, and there's no action. There, there doesn't seem to be anything to, to learn, to glean personally from these long lists of names, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and, and we just, we can get very easily bogged down when we go through genealogies, and so the temptation might be, we'll just skip over it. Uh, why bother? But of course, that's a mistake. All of God's words are profitable, and God himself has breathed them out for us, and so it's a mistake to skip through or to skim over anything in the scripture, but it's especially a mistake if we miss what's going on here in Matthew chapter 1. What Jesus 
is, is being revealed as in Matthew 1. What Matthew's doing in this genealogy is not just giving us information. He's not merely telling us where Jesus came from, what his family tree looks like. Matthew's actually showing us something about who Jesus is and the purpose for which he came. Now, rest assured, we're not going to go through every single name and every line of this family tree. We don't have time to do that today. We're really going to look at the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. But what we're going to see today, I I trust, will be a great encouragement to us. So look with me at at Matthew 1. I'm going to read the the first six verses all in one piece here. And so stick with me as we enter into the record book here. And that's how Matthew begins. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Uh, Something that jumps out immediately as we read through the early stages of this genealogy, there are some big names in here, beginning with Abraham, and at least in this paragraph, ending with David. But here's, here's a fair question. What's, what would be the point for Matthew to dig so far back into the family tree? Uh, he tells us later that Abraham is 42 generations removed from Jesus. Is it really important that we go that far back in establishing the family tree? And this is something that, that modern people tend to, uh, to appreciate far less than ancient people did. In the time of the Bible, your genealogy was your resume. Your your family tree is what qualified you. It's what validated you. It's what made you somebody. To, To be part of a respectable family, to come from respectable roots, to be able to trace back your own bloodline, your own lineage, to uh, heroes and kings and mighty warriors and faithful men and women, that that was more important than almost anything else in the the ancient world and in the way of thinking uh, of, of Jewish people, to be able to trace their genealogy back and take pride in it. This is what makes me who I am. This is what defines me. And that's why we find so much genealogy in the Bible. It was essential to their identity, to their rootedness in the promises of God and their relationship to to, to God and God's people. It was a defining thing. And that's why the Bible gives uh, so much attention to it. And, and, you know, we as, as modern Americans, we just, we don't tend to see life the same way right? Um, We are fiercely individualistic, 
And therefore, we don't put quite as much stock in our roots, in our ancestry, in where we came from. Um, again, most people could not tell you the names of their eight great-grandparents, even though that's only a few generations, not 20 or 30 or 40 or 42 in the case of Matthew's genealogy. We don't trace our, our history with, with as much uh, diligence and, and, um, and pride because we don't tend to uh, define ourselves based on our family history. We go out and make our own way. We make a name for ourselves. And so it's a stretch for us to see this in the same way. But what Matthew's communicating here in revealing to us generation upon generation is what every self-respecting Jewish person would have understood. We proudly trace our ancestry back. And if we can get back to Abraham, then we're even prouder because we are sons of Abraham. He's the father of Israel. And, and this is what gives us our sense of identity, not just national identity, but personal identity. I'm respectable. I'm honorable. Because look at who I came from. So th this is the, the, the utmost significance of a genealogy. But this is where things get weird. This is where Matthew goes way off script. Look, at, look, look back at verse 3 with me uh, as we get to Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, now look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And then in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. The family tree begins with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, an all-star cast. You can't start any better than that. Jesus is off to a perfect start. But then, very soon after those three names, we see a few more names. We see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women. Now, that's not strange to us. But in ancient times, women were almost never included in genealogies. It was a, uh, what we call a patriarchal society, very male-dominated. And so the, the ancestral list was all about fathers and sons. This father had this son or these sons, and then these sons had these sons and so forth. It was, it was not uh, at all common, and it was not honorable to put women in the resume. Right? They just didn't hold the same place in that society. And so Matthew would have been expected to follow suit, to list the men. And yet right here, he deliberately includes these four women. Why is that? Is Matthew just an especially progressive-minded person? No, in each case, Matthew is not just giving us information. He's, he's telling us something. And he's using the stories of these women, the names of these women, uh, to help us to see. Uh, let, me, let me very briefly go through these four, just so that we're clear on, on the context here. First, we have Tamar. Tamar gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah, and the father of the twins was Judah. 
Now, that's not strange all by itself, but if we read the story back in Genesis, Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. And he was also the father of her children. There's nothing on days of our lives that can compete with that kind of dysfunction. I mean, that is a, that, that, that Tamar deceived Judah. She hid her identity from him. They entered into sin together, and uh, the twins came from that union. It is, it is a strange and sad, sinful, and frankly, icky story. And yet Matthew makes sure to remind us of it. Then we've got Rahab, and we know that Rahab, from the book of Joshua, she was a prostitute who lived in the evil city of Jericho, far from God. Ruth, Ruth was a poor Gentile, a wanderer, until Boaz redeemed her and married her. Uh, and then we've got the most, the most famous of these four women. We've got Bathsheba, and I, and I trust that many of us are familiar with her story, how King David, when he should have been off at war, he was idly by himself at home. He saw Bathsheba and desired her, and he took her. He took advantage of her. And they conceived a child, and after David realized what he had done, he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed, to get rid of him so that David could then take her as his wife and appear to be noble. It's one of, one of the most shocking and ugly stories in the entire Bible. Now, what's Matthew doing by telling us these names, by, by in bringing to mind these stories, isn't Matthew doing damage, major damage to Jesus's resume here? I mean, think about what we just talked about. If, if your genealogy is supposed to build your credibility and strengthen your, your sense of identity and your resume, why is Matthew seemingly diminishing Jesus's resume? I, Matthew could have uh, easily left these names out of the list, and he would have been expected to leave these things out. So why are they here? Well, in this case, the, the scripture is not being given to us simply to relay information, but to reveal God's purpose for sending Jesus into the world. What we're being shown here, just through this list of names, is the meaning of Jesus's life, not just the details of where he came from. Let, recall how Matthew begins his gospel. We read it a minute ago in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. In verse 1, Matthew has already told us something, the most significant thing about Jesus. Before he ever gets into the details, he tells us who he is. He is the Messiah meaning Jesus is the anointed one of God. Just a few verses down toward the end of this chapter, when the angel comes to Joseph, he tells him, Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For Jesus to be the Messiah means God has specially appointed him, anointed him, sent him into the world to save the world. That's what the name Jesus means. That's why his name is so significant. The name itself means the salvation of God. Just, just right there in, in the name, we discover a sense 
of his purpose. And so the, the presence of these people in Jesus' family tree, in this case, you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and, and Bathsheba, their presence in the lineage does not discredit Jesus. It doesn't bring him down. What it's meant to do is to open our eyes to just how great his salvation really is. And so two major points I want us to, to see and hopefully take away as we look at this list of names. Uh, two points. The first is the providence of God. Providence means that God is committed to accomplishing his good purpose and nothing can stop it. God is committed to achieving his ultimate, good, eternally perfect purpose and nothing can stand in his way. Um, there's another word that we use of God, the word sovereignty, which means that God is all-powerful and ultimately in control, but providence has a slightly different uh, uh, ring to it. It's not that God is, is simply powerful and in control, but he's good, and he has, he has uh, obligated himself, he's made promises to achieve his good purpose in all that he does for his people. And so back in verse 1, when Matthew says Jesus is the Messiah, Matthew elaborates on that by giving us two other titles. He says Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now when, when Matthew gives us those titles, son of David, son of Abraham, we're meant to understand that Jesus has come to fulfill something about Abraham and David. That, that only the Messiah can, can do, that only the Messiah can fulfill. So when, when we're told that Jesus is the son of Abraham, what that means is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God made the promise. He says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the nations will find their blessings. Well, Abraham wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, nor was the nation of Israel to whom the promise was given. The fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ, who dies for the sins of the whole world. And in him, in his fulfillment, all the nations are blessed. And when Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, he is the fulfillment now of God's covenant promise to David, they, uh, God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The promise of God there was not that there would be an unending succession of human beings sitting on a physical earthly throne. But Jesus is the one who sits on the throne who takes up kingship uh, as a son of David and who has an eternal throne upon which he sits and rules. And Jesus has ascended to that throne, having been raised from the dead in glory. Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus is now the fulfillment of these great titles, these offices. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And y'all, this is, to me, this is where God's providence becomes clear. 
how is Jesus going to come and fulfill these, these great titles, these great promises? Through the line of Abraham and David. Through a long line of sinful people. Even if we, I've been focusing on the women up to this point, even if you took the women out and kind of the scandalous nature of, of the names of these women, which Matthew puts in on purpose, but what if you just took them out? What are you left with? You're still left with a long line of men who were utterly sinful. Every single person on the list had their sins. We, we've got a list of men who were guilty of idolatry, deception, rebellion, incest, and even murder. Some people on the list were heroes. Others were scoundrels. And yet God orchestrated it just so in bringing his perfect son into the world. God did not go around the line of Abraham and David, but right through it even if it meant uh, bringing Jesus through a line of sinners. Um, I, I think a lot of us are tempted, when we see something bad, we're tempted perhaps to say, nothing good could come from this. If it's especially bad, I don't see how any good thing can come from this bad thing. What's the purpose of this thing, this event, this tragedy, this hardship? Or maybe we're prone to look at ourselves. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we consider our own sin, our own past. Uh, and we might say, how could anything good come out of my life? How could God do anything good in me? How could God use me? How could God save me? Or perhaps God could. I understand he's all powerful. He's God. But why would he? Maybe some of us are prone to think that God gave up on me a long time ago, because look at me and look what I've done. But y'all, I, I want us to be encouraged as we look at the family tree of Jesus. What possible good could come from Judah and Tamar's incest? What possible good could have come from David uh, taking Bathsheba and seeing her husband uh, murdered? I mean, I mean th those things are evil in themselves, right? There's no justification for what those people did, for the sin that they committed. But God, in his providence, was not derailed by those sins and those individuals. God, in his providence, cannot be, will not be derailed by our sin. Y'all, no amount of dysfunction in the family tree could ever cut off God's perfect plan to fulfill his perfect promises. And here in this family tree, we see this, and, and I want us to take this to heart. You know, no matter what your own family tree might look like, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the goodness of God will always prevail for those who turn to him and trust him, for those who receive his grace. God, Y'all, God did not send Jesus near the world. God sent Jesus into the world 
and he sent him into the world for you, for me. Nothing you've done uh, was, was, was so odious and so awful that God said, no, 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 no. That's where I draw the line. I will not be gracious to him or her. I will not send my son for them. No. He sent his son into the world for sinners like us. For the worst of us. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul actually says about himself. In, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, This is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. What a statement. See, in that, in that case, the Apostle Paul, he knew how unworthy he was. But he also knew, far and above that, he knew how gracious God is. You know, your sin, my sin, is no match for the grace of God. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And his family tree is a, is a wonderful picture of that. God is not derailed in the fulfillment of his good grace based on the things we do. We cannot corrupt and pervert his good intention. He will see it through. And this is the second thing. It's not just the depth of God's love and his goodness, but it's also the, the reach. The reach. Remember what we said about genealogies being like resumes. In those days, in ancient times, people would go to great lengths to edit their family tree, to change it or to, you know, kind of sweep certain things under the rug in an effort to avoid the shame that came with certain people or certain events. Uh, King, King Herod the Great uh, is well known for, for trying to edit his ancestry because there were certain people he didn't want to be associated with. And so think about it. We, we know, we've already discussed the fact that women were typically left out. Women were, were rarely mentioned in genealogies. Also Gentiles. If you were a non-Jewish person, then you were, you were considered a shameful blot on the family line, and, and people would do all they could to, to remove or at least ignore the Gentiles throughout the generations because that would make them less pure. I want to be a pure Israelite, a pure Jewish person, and Gentiles corrupt the bloodline, that's the way that they thought. If there was immorality in the past, well, you can't go back and change what uncle so-and-so did or what great-grandpa so-and-so did. You can't change it, but you sure wouldn't talk about it. You would do everything you could to sweep that under the rug. That's not part of the story. That's not part of our narrative. Keep that stuff quiet. Don't bring that shame upon us. That's the way people thought. But here we have Matthew going out of his way to bring these things to light. He's not suppressing. He's not editing out. He's airing it out. Why? Y'all, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus truly has come to save his people from their sins, then we have to ask the question, okay, well, what kind of people? When it says Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, well, the, the good ones, the best of the people, the people who are really sharp 
and, and religious and moral and, and who've got the right pedigree, that, those kind of people? No, <laughs> not according to his resume, not according to his genealogy. What Matthew's so showing us here is that Jesus came for every kind of person, for all people, for both men and women, both Jew and Gentile, both rich and poor, slave and free, kings as well as prostitutes, heroes as well as scoundrels. They're all in here. Everybody I just mentioned, every category I just mentioned is right here in the genealogy of Christ. These are the people he came to save. And y'all, this is, this is how the good news works. With us acknowledging, as we look at this list, we have to acknowledge the plain truth that the Bible proclaims to us, that someone like King David requires the same grace and forgiveness as Bathsheba does. That Judah needs the same mercy from God that Tamar does. We're not here to rank most to least deserving. No, none of them are deserving in the end. No matter how we might esteem them, no matter how heroic they may have been, they were still sinners in need of grace. Everybody on the list, the whole list, which we didn't read, but it begins with Abraham and it ends with the Virgin Mary, every single person on that list was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and mercy, just like us. They, in the end, are just like us, sinners in need of deliverance. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so, so what do we take from this? What do I hope that we would take in terms of, of applying it to our hearts? Uh, one truth that, that I hope will be precious to us, and, and I hope it will, will plant itself deep down. Y'all, at Christmas... At Christmas, God does not go around us to achieve his good purposes. God does not go around the world, around the sinful world, to solve our deepest problems. And something I mentioned a minute ago, God does not merely come near to us in order to rescue us. He doesn't just get close, close enough to help us out, but not so close that he might get dirty himself. No, y'all, at Christmas, God comes to be with us. That's what the meaning of Christmas really is. It's God with us. The angel says to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then right after that, the angel proclaims, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. His name is Jesus, and yet he will also be called God present with us. And y'all, that, that's not just nice spiritual language. That's the entire essence of the good news, that Jesus entered in to be with us in the most real and tangible and wonderful way. There, there's a little bitty story in, in Luke chapter 5, a short story, that's always struck me, and more and more it strikes me every time I come to it. It's not a Christmas story. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man 
with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a, a miserable and horrible disease. It was a skin disease, and it was contagious. And so the person who contracted leprosy became an outcast, even from his own family. No one was allowed to come in contact with a person who had leprosy. No one was allowed to touch them or to be touched by them because then they would communicate that disease to another. And so they were, they were living in perpetual quarantine. They were cast out, and they could not experience uh, life in any normal way. They were just left to waste away on their own. Well, look at what happens. This is Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Now think about what's taking place in that story. Every other person in the world must stay away from this man. Is for, we, we forbid them to touch him, to be close to him, or else he's going to communicate his uncleanness to them. And so stay away. But then one day, Jesus comes along. The man asks for healing. He didn't ask to be touched because he knew that was off limits. He knew for Jesus to touch him would communicate uncleanness to Jesus, and so he asked for something supernatural, yes, but he got more than what he bargained for. Jesus stretches out his own hand and touches him. I am willing. I am willing. And y'all, in that moment, there was no uncleanness given to Jesus. But his cleanness, his purity, his healing was given to the leper. Y'all, when we talk about God coming to be with us, what a wonderful picture that is right there. What kind of God would, would enter in and allow us to touch him and would stretch out his own hand to touch us? What kind of God would, would, would condescend, would come down to look us in the eye and show us value and honor and love and mercy? What kind of God would humble himself like this to take on flesh and to dwell among us? This is the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who did not just become like us to get close to us, but he entered in at the deepest level, even to the point of his own death on a cross. Jesus suffered for us and died for us. He came in all the way down and um, fulfilled his great mercy to us um, face to face. And y'all, in all of Jesus' condescending and his coming downward to be with us, 
He's never diminished. We cannot communicate our uncleanness to him. We cannot infect him. We cannot corrupt him. He communicates his cleanness to us. He cleanses, he purifies, he saves us. He gives his divine life to us. Matthew, in this genealogy, is not worried about discrediting Jesus. You can't do it. He's the Messiah. He's not worried about tarnishing Jesus' reputation. Jesus never cared about his reputation. He's simply showing us the extent to which God was committed to saving sinners. Sinners like you and me. From Abraham down to Mary. From Kyle down to Mason and Caleb. Whoever it is, God's commitment is to reach into our family trees with his incredible grace and bring us life. Y'all, to be a Christian uh, means that we are children of God and we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture says. Children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so we know what that means. We are not edited out of God's family tree because he's ashamed of us, because we've crossed the line one too many times, because he he wouldn't have anything to do with someone like me. No, he doesn't edit us out. He brings us in. God is adding new branches to the tree all the time. He's grafting us in to the root of his divine love. And he is not ashamed to call us brethren, it says of Jesus, because this is the purpose for which he came. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners even the foremost among us. Y'all, Christmas Christmas is the perfect season to look upon the coming of Christ and joyfully place our faith in Him. To joyfully, fully place our trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the one who saves us from our sins. Y'all, by His name, alone. May we be saved. Because his name means the salvation of God. He is our hope. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what the the family tree looks like in all its dysfunctions, Jesus Christ enters right in and says, I will give you my life. I will make you part of a new family, the very family of God, and I will wash away all your sins. What a Christmas miracle we get to enjoy as we look to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray this this morning that we would see it, that I would see it, right here in, in this list of names, that we would see, on one hand, corruption and rebellion and shame and sin. Thank you, Lord, for for airing it out, for bringing it out, and and not editing it out to appear appear falsely credible. Um, Jesus didn't need to appear uh, falsely righteous. He is your perfect son. And so thank you, Lord, for showing us this, this reality today, and I pray that we would take it to heart that we're just like this this family tree. 
We've got heroes and we've got scoundrels in our past. We are often the very same. We are heroic at times and rebellious at others. Lord, we're sinners. And so thank you, Lord, for showing us that in the line of Jesus, he came to save the king and the prostitute, the rich and the poor. He came to save um, all of us by the grace that he brought with him into this world. Uh, Father, help us this morning to have a deeper appreciation for all of your word. What we read today, we might be prone to skip over. Um, But Lord, all of your word is breathed out by your spirit. It's profitable. It's good. And as we look at the word today, Lord, I pray that we would be deeply encouraged and, and transformed. There's no one excluded from the depth of your love and the reach of your grace. No one is left out if we will look to Jesus in trust, if we will repent, Lord, if we will turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ in trust and faith. Help us, Lord, not just to see it, but to live it out. Help us to be a people, Lord, who gladly uh, acknowledge our deep need for Christ and who gladly receive all that he's come to give. Lord, thank you for the gift of, of, of yourself, God with us. Your touch, Lord, your, your eyes, your face, uh, your, your feet, Lord, walking right here on this earth, Lord, your blood shed, Jesus Christ, on the cross. All of it real. All of it done face to face. Because you were willing to get your hands dirty. You were willing to suffer for us. Father, let that truth change us as we look to you in faith this Christmas. We pray it in Christ's precious name. Amen.